again for joining me on this episode of the podcast if you would like to support the show please find us on patreon or become a sponsor by following the become a sponsor link in the blog this is going to be a rather brief episode and episode let if you will and it will be in the vein of my previous episode called books are dogs now where i looked at one of the most surreal and bizarre conversations i've ever had with an anti-intellectual fundamentalistic atheist this current episode is about another such occasion. Enjoy the show. Today I had a dialogue. Well, dialogue usually entails a two-way conversation, and this wasn't that. So I had an experience with an atheist of the Jesus mythicist variety that I wanted to give a little bit of commentary on here. I'll provide a link to the thread in the show notes and a copy of the meme that started the thread for all of you to see, so you can go check this out for yourselves if you want to. And the image, by the way, was from mythicist Milwaukee, which for those of you who know is one of the most really dishonest and deceptive mythicist organizations out there that seem to intentionally mislead people whenever possible. So that should have been a warning that this was not going to be a productive conversation, but I guess I was feeling particularly masochistic today. Now, I do not typically engage with Jesus mythicists because I've found that they are either so ignorant while being rabidly dogmatic, or else they're flat out dishonest that no real reasonable discourse can be had with them. But for some reason, I decided to engage with this mythicist. Now, I'm not going to name names, but those of you who are also in the Unbelievable Facebook group with me will likely know who this token mythicist is in the group. Now, he's usually polite, but beyond that, there's very little redeeming qualities to his diatribes. This one was no exception. So the meme that started the op was supposed to be one of those parallelomaniac memes where it gives a bunch of vague statements without telling you who the person is that it's referencing, and you're supposed to guess who it is, right? So it lists things like born of a virgin, raised by a poor family and became a shepherd, killed by the conniving elite, tells good news to, high, to his people, ascends to heaven to rule on high, and so forth. And at the top, it asks the question if you can, quote, name that God-man. Okay, first, even if we were to grant the parallels, which I don't, and, and we'll see why for one of them specifically here in a moment, the deity of Jesus as the God-man is conceptually distinct. It's a different than the concept of the demigods in the Greco-Roman myths. They're ontologically and conceptually different. 
For more on these kinds of issues, I recommend the show that I did previously called Weapons of Mass Disambiguation. Okay, but besides that, at the very end it says, quote, This is actually Plutarch's first century biography of Romulus, the mythical founder of Rome. And at that point, the scales are supposed to fall from our eyes and the hallelujah chorus ring out as we come to see that Jesus of the Gospels is just, you guessed it, a composite of previous God-man dying and rising gods like Romulus. And if you know these arguments like Horus and Osiris and Attis and Dionysus and Zoroaster and so on. Now, anyone even remotely familiar with the scholarship on these issues know that this is beyond bogus. Like, beyond, beyond bogus. Like, there's more scholarly support for Holocaust denialism than for this kind of Jesus mythicism. Uh, it, it's, it's so abysmally bad. But okay. Setting even that aside, what happened in this dialogue was, well, bizarre. Even even for engagements with, with mythicists as far as they go. Now, my typical approach to dealing with a mythicist when I do is to simply ask them to give primary sources that support their claims. They'll say things usually like, quote, the whole Bible is borrowed from older mythologies, end quote, or, quote, there are counterparts in myth that are nearly identical to Jesus from non-Christian mythology, end quote, or, quote, the gospel writers just borrowed from other Greek myths to invent their story of their own dying and rising sun god, end quote, and so on. And yes, those are direct quotes from mythicists that I have spoken to within the past day or so. And so when they do say things like that, I typically do two things. First, I point out that pretty much every one of those myths that I listed is only known to us from sources that post-date the Christian era. That is, that pretty much all of the sources that we have for these myths come hundreds of years, sometimes a full millennium after the Gospels were written. Now let that sink in. They're trying to say that the Gospels borrow from these Greco-Roman myths. But what do we find? Everything that we know about them come after Christianity was on the scene. Now, I don't know about you, but if something's going to borrow, um, it's going to be the latter from the former, right? Not the former from the latter. We don't have time machines. The second thing I do is ask them to give me quotes and citations from the primary sources. I, I don't want them to give me quotes from Gerald Massey or Dia Murdoch or Michael Sherlock or, or Raphael Atasser or any other of the 20th and 21st century pseudo-scholars that they take on blind faith to accurately be handling the original text. By the way, for my listening audience, we, we know for an absolute fact that people like Massey and those after him flat out invented some of these stories. Okay, but besides that, what I want them to do is quote the passage from Plutarch or Livy or Dionysius and give the citation for the passage that they think tells us, in this case, in this thread, that Romulus was born of a virgin, for example. What this will typically do, however, is elicit a whole spectrum of responses. Either you'll get blocked, 
you'll get called names, you'll get links to other mythicists who also don't get primary sources or some other kinds of weird shenanigans. What you never get are actual quotes and citations from the primary sources. So with this mythicist, I had somewhat of a good idea what I would get. But to be honest, I never expected just how weird it would get. After asking for quotes and sources about 30 times, and I'm, and I'm literally not exaggerating, where he refused to do so over and over, he then started a new diversionary tactic that I haven't really seen before by saying that he didn't want to cite the sources because, and I quote, what would be the point, end quote. He kept saying that I would see the source and say, quote, oh, well, she wasn't really a virgin then, end quote. And for him, that means that I couldn't handle the text honestly. And so he refused to quote and cite the passage that he thought showed that Romulus was born of a virgin. I mean, think about that for a second. Let that sink in. He would not quote primary sources and cite the texts. Why? Because I would disagree with his interpretation. Did you get that? So he would only ever share quotes and citations with people who would agree with his interpretation of the texts. That is, with other mythicists. So I continued to ask him for sources to which he actually replied, and again, I quote, quote, tell you what, I'll answer if you tell me honestly and convincingly how seriously you take mythicism, end quote. Now, did you catch that? He'll answer me if I meet the condition of taking his mythicism seriously. Well, what does he mean by seriously? We're going to find out in a second. Taking it seriously means I agree with his presuppositions and his interpretations. So I answered. This is what I said. Quote, I believe mythicism is false and demonstrably so. You are free to convince me otherwise. Before you could do so, you would need to show me pre-Christian sources where these archetypes are to be found. That would be step one. Right now, you are refusing to do so because in all likelihood you have no such sources, but please prove me wrong." End quote. He then continued that I didn't deserve an answer, and because I wouldn't accept that Romulus was born of a virgin if he cited the text anyway. Well, dear audience, why wouldn't I accept it? Well, if it was in the text, I would. I have no problem with it. In fact, I've stated many times in consideration of the Old Testament that the Old Testament is borrowing intentionally from other ancient Near Eastern myths. I don't think it means what the, what, the, what the critical scholars think that it means, but I have no problem saying when it's borrowing for a theological or polemical reason, if it's in the text. But why don't I accept that it's in the text of Plutarch, for example? because it's not there. And I know this because unlike this mythicist, I've actually read the primary sources, some of them in the original languages. So he refused to cite his sources for this bizarre reason after being asked a dozen times. I finally did the work for him. I provided the sections of Plutarch's biography of Romulus that directly deal with the stories about Romulus's birth. And yes, 
none of them present Romulus as being conceived in a virginal conception. As proof, let me give you the quotes from Plutarch. By the way, it should also be noted that Plutarch was writing, by all accounts, after the letters of Paul, and likely after the Synoptic Gospels were written. That is, after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. Possibly John, depending on how you date it, but let's be fair and say John was written in the 90s, maybe contemporary, or after Plutarch. So keep that in mind. If any borrowing is happening, should we honestly think that earlier sources borrowed from texts that came about after they finished their own composition? But okay, that aside, what does Plutarch say about Romulus? These are going to be direct quotes from the University of Chicago translation of Plutarch's The Life of Romulus, the link to which I'll put in the show notes. In 2.2, he says that the natural-born son of Aeneas and Dexathea was Romulus. So this is what he says, quote, For some say that he was born of Aeneas and Dexathea, the daughter of Phorbas, and was brought to Italy in his infancy, along with his brother Romus, that the rest of the vessels were destroyed in the swollen river, but the one in which the boys uh, were was gently directed to the grassy bank, where they were unexpectedly saved, and the place was called Roma from them. Okay, end quote. That's that one. He had a natural birth from his natural parents. By the way, Plutarch is going through a series of of, of, uh, concepts or stories about where Romulus came from, right? So he's giving these kind of an order. 2-3-A, the natural-born son of Roma and Latinus, the son of Telemachus. That is, he's the natural-born son of two human parents. Plutarch says, quote, Others say it was Roma, a daughter of the Trojan woman I have mentioned, who was wedded to Latinus, the son of Telemachus, and bore him Romulus. Others that Amelia, the daughter of Aeneas, and Lavina bore him to Mars. Right? Here, here you have he is the natural-born son of human parents, with the tack-on that he had a mother and he was born to Mars. Now, think about your understanding of, of Greco-Roman myths. Go back to your to your comparative religious, your social studies courses. What was typically happening in Greco-Roman myths when, when gods and deities wanted to, to copulate with humans? Was it virginal conceptions? No. Think of Zeus. Think of the stories of Zeus and Mars and all the others. Uh, and, 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 and what did they do? They disguised themselves as humans. They came down. They seduced the human lovers. And they had sex with them. Right? These are not virginal conception stories. Now, what about 2-3-B? 2-3-B says that he is the son of a handmaiden who had sex with a mystical phallus in the king's chambers. Okay, it gets weird, but, but this is what he says. Quote, and others still rehearse what is altogether fabulous concerning his origins. I'm actually going to stop right here. It should be noted that Plutarch thinks that this is a pretty ridiculous story in himself. There's, there's no positive language about this story. Okay, back to what he says. Quote, for instance... They say that Tarchetus, king of Albans, who was the most lawless and cruel, was visited with a strange phantom in his house, namely a phallus rising out of the hearth and remaining there many days. 
And when the hand, oh, and I'm skipping some things, but basically he, he called out for some, some uh, women to come and have sex with the phallus. Uh, this one woman didn't want to go, so she sends her handmaiden instead. Uh, quote, and when the handmaid became the mother of the twin children by the phantom, right, the penis coming out of the fireplace, Tarkidus gave them to certain Teratius with orders to destroy them. Now, what does this one say? Is it a virginal conception? No. She copulated with a penis coming out of a fireplace, right? Not virginal. Now, it might not be normal, but it's not virginal by any stretch of the imagination. The final one in 3.2c. Now, this one is somewhat unknown. The idea here is that she's supposed to be a virgin. His mother is supposed to be a virgin. She's, she's given to be a, prince, a priestess to Vesta, which is which are, they're supposed to have vows of chastity. The Vesta, uh, we're, supposed to be, we're supposed to be virgins. But she's found to be with child, and there's no explanation given, but the, the text seems to insinuate that the problem wasn't that she had some type of virginal conception. The problem was that she, you know, became pregnant, uh, and everyone seemed to think, well, she slept around. It says, quote, uh, Amulius, then, in the possession of the treasure, and made more powerful by it than Numitor, easily took the kingdom away from his brother, and fearing lest that brother's daughter should have children, made her a priestess of Vesta, bound to live unwed and a virgin all of her days. Her name is variously given as Isla, or Rhea, or Sylvia. Not long after this, she was discovered to be with child, contrary to the established law for the Vestals. That's it. That's all there is. By the way, in parallel passages in Livy, this is, this is explained not by some virginal conception, but the fact that she was forcibly raped by someone. Right. So, so even the parallel passages don't have a virginal conception. Okay, so what are the options? The first two uh, are that, they, that he had human parents. The second is that the handmaiden had sex with a penis in the king's chambers. Not virginal. The final one basically is that she was supposed to be a virgin, but clearly wasn't because she's found with child. So does Plutarch present Romulus as the God-man child of a virginal conception? Not even a little bit. Okay. I even gave him a citation from the Ancient History Encyclopedia, which reads, quote, There is much debate and variation as to whom was the father of Romulus and Remus. Some myths claim that Mars appeared and lay with Rhea Silvia. By the way, stopping there, uh, notice that the scholars read those passages as Mars laying with Rhea Silvia. That's because there's other sources that talk about that. Uh, it's not a virginal conception there either. Back to the quote. Other myths attest that the demigod hero Hercules was her partner. However, the author Livy claims that Rhea Silver was in fact raped by an unknown man, but blamed her pregnancy on divine conception. End quote. And so I asked him, since you refuse to cite the sources from Plutarch, those are the references in Plutarch to the supposed birth of Romulus. Care to say where you see the virginal conception? Is it the one where you had parents, the one where the handmaiden had sex with a penis, or the one where no mention of the means is mentioned? End quote. That was my question. What do you think his response was? He said, and I quote, quote, Tyler, notice how you totally sidestepped my question. End quote. 
had I sidestepped his question? I pointed out that I answered his question and what he did is he replied to a link from biblehub.com for Matthew 21, 27, which the verse reads, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Right? Weird response, right? So rather than engaging with the context, he puts the words of Jesus on his mouth that unless I answer him, then he won't answer me. I wish I was kidding, folks. Look at the thread. This is literally how he responded. And remember, at this point, he doesn't even need to list the sources anymore. I had already gone through the trouble of quoting and citing them for him. All he needed to do was point to the verse that he believed showed that Romulus was the product of a virginal conception. That's it. It's literally just pin the tail on the passage. I had done all the work for him, but nothing. And this is where it gets even more bizarre. I'm going to read the next few comments just so you can get a feel for how this went down. Uh, and I'm not going to say his name. I'm just going to say mythicist when he says something. Mythicist, you haven't done the work of answering the question I asked of you. Me. Did you ask me a question or try to set a condition where I had to accept mythicism before you defended it? Which, by the way, we saw. Mythicist, I asked you a question. All I asked for was an honest answer. Me? And what question was that? Mythicist, how seriously you take mythicism? At this point, uh, someone named Luke Bradley jumps in and says, as seriously as you can present it, withholding information and sources uh, are taken into account, which is kind of a funny comment, but true. So I respond, I answered, I take it as false. So not that seriously, but I could be wrong, waiting on evidence, care to provide any yet. Mythicist, I don't feel that's an honest answer. Me. That's exactly what I believe. How is it not honest? So let me get this straight. Now, before you will give evidence for your view, cite a source or quote a text. I not only need to give my honest view of mythicism, but I have to give the answer that you want me to give, which is a favorable view of mythicism. I mean, am I being punked right now? Is this for real? Do you really, when you look over this thread, do you think to yourself, yeah, I'm being reasonable, end quote. Okay, now I may have gotten a little snarky there, but I mean, this conversation so far has been so surreal at this point, I still can't really tell if he's being serious or if he's just trolling. And the really sad thing is that from my conversations with him in the past, I think he's being 100% serious. Mythicist, I don't feel that's exactly what you believe. I only want you to be honest. Me. This is ridiculous. Now you're saying I'm lying so that you can avoid citing sources? Mythicist, I'm simply asking you to be honest. When I hear real honesty from you, I'll answer your question. Me, and what am I being dishonest about? Please show the lie and how you know I'm being dishonest. Mythicist, intuition. I can't prove it, I'm afraid. Me. So your intuition tells you that I'm lying, that I believe mythicism is false. Mythicist, no, I only want your honest feelings about it. 
At this point in the dialogue, Nicholas, uh, who you heard on the last episode, who's one of my friends uh, in these groups, came in and commented and, and, and started asking about primary sources to which the mythicists refused to answer. Okay, so now I continue. Me. And I gave them, are you a psychic that knows otherwise? I've never hidden that I think mythicism is false. Why would I lie now by saying that I think it's false? Mythicist. No, to any great degree you didn't. Right? Did you catch that? Uh, he's now saying, I didn't lie, but I didn't give my true, honest feelings to any great deg degree. Um, it's weird. Nicholas uh, then jumps in and he says, Do you realize the importance of primary sources? There can be nothing ignorant about seeking primary source material to support your case. Refusing to do otherwise might say something about ignorance. Mythicist. Yep, you seem highly ignorant, NJ. Okay, stopping there. As an aside, notice that he calls in Nicholas, Nicholas goes by NJ, Nicholas ignorant. Why? because he asked about the importance of primary sources and pointed out that ignoring them is the thing that actually reveals a level of ignorance to anyone who has studied the primary sources, which is 100% right. Mythicist, I asked you, Tyler, how seriously you take it, but honest in your answer and I'll, honest, and I'll answer your question. Nicholas, assume that I am, can you inform me of the primary source that supports mythicism so that I can be less ignorant going forward? Mythicist, I don't need to assume it, NJ. You proved it with the very first thing you said, and I don't want to encourage you. Okay, okay. That brings us up to date. Uh, that's where the conversation is currently, or, or at least at the time of recording. Yes, that is a real conversation. And this is mythicism. This isn't unusual. I wish I could say this conversation was strange, but it really isn't. I, I, part of the reason I, 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 I want to kind of air the dirty laundry of this mythicist isn't to mock or ridicule him. Rather, the purpose of this really is twofold. Number one, Christians, when faced with mythicists, ask for quotes and citations from the primary sources. 99% of the time, the person you're talking to is just blindly parroting what they've read from other atheistic fundamentalists uh, and what they've heard them say and seen on their blogs, and they have no reasonable or coherent defense of their assertions, and so they have no sources. And don't let them get away with quoting secondary sources. That is, quoting people like Murdoch or Massey or Campbell or, or, or Sherlock or, or Latastor. Saying that there are sources that present uh, this doesn't qualify. We know that mythicists in the past have flat out invented passages and said that there were certain mythical features of some character that we know there's not. So what they have to do is present primary source texts. And anyone who's intellectually honest should be willing to do so. If they thrash and insult and evade, then you know they know none of the texts that actually support their position, because there are none. Secondly, to my atheist listeners, take the time to hold your own camp accountable. I'm finding it harder and harder to find an atheist online who does not either fully support or have strong sympathies for the mythicist position. The instant you endorse these people, the instant you invite them to speak at your groups and at your conferences, the instant most people see that type of endorsement, 
is when the motivated reasoning behind it becomes apparent. The instant I hear a Christian, for example, endorse flat earth or, or King James onlyism, I write them off as someone who cannot objectively, uh, objectively and reasonably engage in a conversation. If atheists want to be viewed as reasonable and objective and honest and as people who care about scholarship and evidence uh, and, and intellectually honest discourse, then as a movement, you need to be more vocal about these subgroups within your ranks. People typically complain about theological debates and arguments throughout history and about how, how seriously we take our doctrine. But what these debates have accomplished is to establish clear lines of what is in bounds and what is out of bounds. And it delineates lines of demarcation between various theological groups. Now, if atheists aren't willing to engage in some sort or some level of self-critical internal dialogues, then groups like the mythicists will continue to grow and grow. It will be like a cancer to your movement, which to be honest, I partly don't care because I think your movement is problematic to begin with. But if you want to be taken seriously, cut the cancer out of your groups. I'm not saying you need to come up with creeds or have inquisitions or anything like that. I'm not saying you need to come up with dogmas, learn from the failures of the church, but I'm offering you an olive branch. I'm letting my neighbors know, I'm letting my atheistic neighbors know that there's a big, fat, mythicist skunk in their backyard, and it stinks. Thank you again for joining me on this impromptu episode of the Free Thinker Podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to contact me at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Join the Free Thinker Podcast Facebook group or email me at freethinkerpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Check out the show notes for the several links that I mentioned. Thank you again. Good night. 